if hope in the Bible is a fire that, that roars in Jesus, then the days of the judges are one of the most flickering embers that we have. Like the days of the judges were not happy and hopeful. They're really dark, really despairing. God's people, Israel, they were supposed to be a holy nation to show all the other nations God's power and God's love. But sadly, rather than bless the other nations, Israel became like the other nations. And they bowed to their idols. They took up their pagan lifestyles. They compromised. The last line of the whole book of Judges says, everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And so Judges, the stories of the days of Judges, they serve as both a warning and an invitation to us. They warn us against compromising to cultural narratives and they invite us into hope in the midst of despair and dark times. The stories of Judges ask us, what does it mean to have uncompromising faith in a faithful God? Good morning, Fellowship Greenville. So good to see you today. I stand corrected. In the first service, I said that Jim was chopping wood bare feet. But I looked more closely and he had his Birkenstocks on, so uh, I have to clear that up before we go any further. Uh, yeah, today we're going to start uh, a new series uh, in the book of Judges and Ruth. And uh, before we get there, though, um, let me just uh, tell you some good news. Karen and I this week got a phone call uh, one night, and uh, it was our grandson, uh, Hampton, and he was like, Coco Mimi, Granddaddy, I, I asked Jesus into my heart last night. And he was so excited. There he is. Uh, he's six years old, and he's, he'd been asking a lot of questions about heaven and hell and all this kind of thing, and uh, talked to Callie and Zach about it, and uh, talked to his teacher about it, and uh, then he prayed to receive Christ. So that was some uh, very, very exciting news. I'm excited about that. And then uh, before we jump in, and by the way, you can take your Bible and turn to Judges chapter one. Uh, we'll get there in just a minute. But um, first of all, let me just begin by saying, hi, how you doing? Welcome to those of you that are joining us for the first time, whether you're here on campus with us or you're tuning in online. We are so uh, glad that uh, you are uh, checking us out today. And uh, one of the things we want you to know about fellowship is that most often on Sunday mornings, you'll find that we are teaching our way through whole books of the Bible. And, and the reason, uh, one of the reasons we do that is because of one of our core values, the core value that Jim uh, talked about last week, and that is understanding Scripture. It's one of our core values. And an important way that we help you understand Scripture is by teaching through whole books of the Bible. Because you see, God chose to reveal himself to us in the 66 books of what we call the Bible. So it makes sense that if God shows us who he is and what he's up to in the world in these 66 books, then we ought to teach the Bible the way that he gave us the Bible, and that is book by book. And then we also believe the best way for you to read the Bible is book by book, not not some kind of random finger plop method where you just flip open your Bible, stick your finger down, and then expect God to speak to you that way. No, God reveals himself to us in these 66 books, 
and we encourage you to read the Bible the way God gave us the Bible and to help you understand your Bible, we teach the Bible book by book. And today, we are beginning a new study in the dark, disturbing book of Judges. So disturbing that one commentator describes the book of Judges as despicable people doing deplorable things. <laughs> and just a heads up, in our study through uh, this book, we will not cover every chapter, and we're not going to go through every verse, and we will not study every judge. There's 12 of them, by the way. This is going to be an eight-part series in the book of Judges, and then we will follow that up with a four-part series in the book of Ruth, and the book of Ruth focuses on one family who lived during the terrible days of the judges. So Judges and Ruth fit together really well, and, and here's the thing. What we want most is for you to see the big picture of what is going on in the days of the judges, and we want you to see how the problems that we face today are very much like the problems that they faced back in the day. We want you to see, and this is our primary concern, we want you to see how life in the book of Judges intersects with life in our world today. You see, the, basically, the big idea for the book of Judges can be summed up in the very last line of the book where we're told that in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes, meaning not so much that there was no physical king like King David or King Solomon who would come later, but no one recognized God as king. God as rightful king. So everyone did whatever seemed right to them. And I think you would agree that that's very much a problem today for people both outside the church and people inside the church. A vast majority of people today do not recognize God's rightful rule over their lives and they have no, no desire to live the way that God says to live because God's ways are too outdated or too inconvenient or too costly. But the bottom line is we live in a day very similar to the days of the judges, a day when everyone does what's right in their own eyes. And for that reason, as one Old Testament scholar puts it, the book of Judges may be one of the most relevant books for the North American church today. Now, let me start by giving you some historical background to the book so you'll know where we are in the big story of the Bible. God has incredibly, miraculously delivered the children of Israel out of Egyptian bondage, and he's brought them to the land that God promised to give to Abraham. Moses, their great leader, led them out of Egypt through 40-year uh, uh, trek in the wilderness and all the way to the border of the promised land, and then Moses died. But before he died, he appointed Joshua as his successor, and it was Joshua that led the Israelites into the promised land. And Joshua started a bloody military campaign to drive out the Canaanite peoples who lived there. Now, if you're thinking with me, that raises some serious questions to modern people. And that is, why is God giving the Israelites a land that belonged to other peoples for hundreds, maybe thousands of years? Why is God sanctioning violence against these nations? 
I mean, is this some kind of rationale for holy war? Is this some sort of ethnic cleansing? And all those are, are, are legitimate questions. I remember years ago, I was sitting in a coffee shop down in Florida. I was on vacation, but I study pretty much every morning, no matter what I'm doing or where I am. And I was sitting in this coffee shop, and I noticed at the table in front of me, there was this college-age student, and she was reading, uh, her, uh, re- reading the Bible. One of her friends walked up and sat down, and he asked her, what you reading? And she said, the Bible. I started at the beginning, and I'm reading it straight through. And he says, what you think? And she says, well, to be honest, I'm really shocked by all the violence. This book is barbaric and bloody. And it was like, and he's like, wow, I I didn't know that about the Bible or whatever. And then uh, two other people came up and they sat down and they changed the subject to something else. Now, had I had the chance, one of the things I would have said to her is this. One thing you need to know about the Bible is that the Bible is not a book of virtues. The Bible doesn't sugarcoat life in this broken world, but rather the Bible tells us the ugly truth about who we are and why the world is so messed up. And it also tells us how God works in the world to make things right. But sometimes some of God's ways don't make sense to people living in the modern world. So yeah, there's, these are uh, legitimate questions that deserve answers. And really, actually, I don't think the answer is all that complicated. First of all, let me just say, no, God did not command Israel to wage a holy war against the Canaanites. And no, God was not sanctioning the total annihilation of a whole people group. Here's why. First of all, because this is God's judgment on these pagan nations for hundreds of years of cruelty and violence. Way back when God made a promise to Abraham that his descendants would uh, possess the land of Canaan as their inheritance, he told Abraham that before his descendants took possession of the land that the Israelites would spend 400 years in a foreign land. In other words, Abraham's descendants would not possess the promised land for 400 years because Well, let me just read it to you, Genesis 15, 13. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that's not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. That's Egypt. Here it is. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterwards they shall come out with great wealth. That's the Exodus. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. The sin of the Amorites, which is a Canaanite nation, had not reached its full measure, meaning their sins had not yet warranted God's judgment in Abraham's day. You see, the Canaanites were a violent people. They were cruel and merciless in warfare, They offered their children as sacrifices to gods. They burned them in fire. They were evil and immoral to the core, and God waited 400 years for them them to change their wicked ways and repent. But their wickedness went from bad to worse to that's it, time's up, and God's judgment came upon them. Now, interestingly enough, in chapter one, and I promise I will get there in just a minute, 
But in chapter one, verses four through seven, we're told that the tribe of Judah waged war against a king named Adonai Bezek, which probably means Lord of Bezek. And Adonai Bezek was defeated in battle and captured. And the text says, they cut off his thumbs and his big toes, which I told you, this, this book is disturbing. I mean, that's so cruel and merciless, right? I mean, how could God's people do such a thing? Well, here's what Adonai Bezek had to say about that. He said, I once had 70 kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off, eating scraps from under my table. And now, listen to this, and now God has paid me back for what I did to them. God has paid me back for what I did to them. Eye for an eye, thumb for a thumb, toe for a toe. This pagan king understands that it was God, not Israel, who cut off his thumbs and toes as judgment for his sins and his lack of mercy. And this just blows my mind. This pagan king reckoned that God was just in doing so. Blows my mind. And so if a pagan king understands that he deserved God's judgment, I don't think we should really have a problem with it. And besides, the scriptures, Old Testament, New Testament, and most definitely Jesus, spoke of God's judgment coming on people both in the present and in the future. And uh, all through scripture, there is, there, there, we know that all scripture points to a final judgment day that is coming, and everyone who has refused to trust in Christ for salvation will be condemned and banished from God's presence forever. So the judgment here is simply God's future judgment brought into the present. It's very much like the flood of judgment that God rained down on people in Noah's day. When God looked at the world in Noah's day, we're told in Genesis 6 that he saw the extent of human wickedness and God saw that every thought and intention of people's hearts were only on evil continuously. And so God put a stop to it. God's judgment fell on the whole world in Noah's day. And here it happens in one Middle Eastern geography to a cruel, wicked, violent people group that God waited 400 years for them to repent. Here's what one Old Testament scholar John Golden Gay says about that, and this is a little commentary here. It's a, it's a really good little commentary on the book of Joshua, Judges, and Ruth. He says, many modern people don't like the way the book portrays Joshua's leading Israel in killing many Canaanites, but there's no indication that the New Testament shares this modern unease. The New Testament pictures Joshua as a great Hebrew, a great hero in Hebrews 11, and portrays God's violent dispossession of the Canaanites as part of the achievement of God's purpose and salvation in Acts 7. If there is a contradiction between loving your enemies and being peacemakers on the one hand, and Joshua's undertaking this tax at God's command on the other hand, the New Testament does not see it. We need to separate two issues in considering the questions all this raises. One is that the Old Testament sees the Canaanites as under God's judgment for their wrongdoing. The idea that God judges people for the wrongdoing runs through both Testaments. And Jesus is tougher about it as he pictures God sending people not merely to early death, but to hell where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. In the context of modernity, to modern people, we don't care for this idea, but we need to note its prominence 
in Jesus' teaching. The other issue is that the Old Testament sees God as using the Israelites as agents of judgment. Golden Gate says, I'm not sure why we don't like this idea, but the concern people often express is that it could become the basis or justification for making war against other people. But Israel itself never saw God's commission to depose the Canaanites as a precedent for its relationship with other nations, nor does the book of Joshua imply that Joshua's action was a pattern for Israel's future practice. This is good. Occupying Canaan and being the means of bringing God's judgment on the Canaanites was a one-time event from the beginning of the story. So what's going on here is not a rationale for holy wars against unbelievers. It's not ethnic cleansing. This is the only place in Jewish scriptures where God says to drive a people out and take their land, and he does so because it's God's judgment on the most wicked people on the face of the earth at that time. Now think about this. Let me ask you. Do you want God to relate to you as a person living in the 21st century or do you want God to relate to you, say, like a person living in the 15th century? One more time. Do you want God to relate to you as a person living in the 21st century or as a person living in the 15th century? I know that just, it sounds ridiculous and crazy and all that kind of stuff, but I'm pretty sure that we all would say, well, we want God to relate to us personally in a way that's consistent with the times in which we live, right? Well, here, God is relating to ancient people in a way that they could understand. And what offends our modern sensibilities today, it was just a part of life back then. And we shouldn't try to read 21st century values back into 13th century BC. Ancient people believed that if they went to war with another nation, if they won that war, that meant my God is bigger than, and better than your God. So God used the Israelites to drive out the Canaanites, and in the thinking of that day, that showed that Yahweh was the one true living God, bigger and better than the idol demon gods of the pagan nations, and everyone understood that. And again, going back to Adonai Bezek, he certainly understood it, because what did he say? He said, God, Elohim, has done to me what I've done to those I've conquered, so my punishment is rightfully deserved. He got it. He understood. And for you Bible scholars, so did Rahab the harlot back in Joshua's battle to defeat Jericho in Joshua chapter 2. Listen to how, how Rahab describes her understanding of God based on what has happened and what is about to happen uh, when she talks to the spies who came into Jericho. Rahab said, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. Listen, we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you and, you, and when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites of the Jordan, you completely destroyed them. We've heard about all that. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you for the Lord your God is God of heaven above and earth below. She got it. She understood it. This idol-worshiping pagan prostitute turned from her gods to Yahweh, the bigger and better God, the one true and living God, and she was spared when Jericho was destroyed 
And she was allowed uh, to live in the land as one of God's people. And get this, if you didn't know this, she ends up being one of Jesus' great, 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 great grandmothers. Wow. Rahab was one of those, listen, Rahab was one of those Canaanites that God had given the opportunity to repent. And when she heard of the mighty acts of Yahweh, that's exactly what she did. God was speaking in a language that these people could understand. The point is, God spoke and acted in a way that they could understand, but it offends our modern sensibilities and we just need to get over it. God was showing them that he was the one true God, one true and living God, executing justice and granting mercy to people like Rahab who turned away from pagan idols to embrace the God of Israel. All right, let's get to our text, Judges 1. At the start of the book of Judges, Israel is in the process of taking possession of the land that God promised them. So look at chapter 1, verse 1. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites and fight against them? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up first. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. Now, I got to give you a little background on this passage. Going back to Abraham again. Years earlier, God had made a covenant with Abram in Canaan. Uh, he was in, in, in Canaan. He says, to your descendants, I will give this land. Genesis 15. Generations later, God delivered Abram's descendants from slavery in Egypt. And when he did, he told Moses, I've come down to rescue you from the Egyptians and to bring you out of that land into a land flowing with milk and honey, Exodus 3. Exodus 23, God promised, my angel will go ahead of you into the land and I will establish your borders. And he tells them how, how big and wide Israel's gonna be. Again, God said in Deuteronomy 1, see, I have given. He's talking past tense. He's, talking, he's using past tense before it happens. I have given you this land. Go in and take possession of the land that I swore that I would give your fathers to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And, to your, and their descendants after them. And then God told Joshua in Joshua chapter one, Moses, my servant is dead. Now arise, go over the Jordan, you and all this people into the land that I'm giving to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given you just as I promised. And nobody's gonna be able to stand against you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers I would give them. Haven't I commanded you, be strong and courageous, don't be frightened, don't be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Over and over again, God promises to give them the land. But as the story opens in Judges, it opens with a crisis, because we're told that Joshua, their beloved leader, has died. And this means that there was no single national leader like Moses and Joshua had been. It's just a whole bunch of different tribes. But the positive thing is the people at this point didn't lose hope. Yes, their leader was gone, but God was their leader. And God promised that he would be with them wherever they went. Plus, they had already seen God, well, they already knew the Exodus story, they had been a part of that, and they had already seen God defeat the Amorites and some of the other nations, and great victories they were. And so they were willing and ready to follow God's instructions. So yeah, 
Things start out very hopeful. They ask Yahweh, what should we do next? And the Lord says, Judah will go up and fight next. Verse three, and Judah says to Simeon, his brother, come up with me into the territory allotted to me that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him and they win the battle. Verse four, Judah went up and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the parasites and the parasites and the termites into their hand. And they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. Verse eight says, the men of Judah attacked Jerusalem also and took it and they put the city to sword and set it on fire. It's a promising start. They're doing what God says. And you know what that, that's like, right? I mean, I mean, I think most of us can think of a time in our lives when we were keenly aware of God's presence, a time when God showed up with power and did things that only that he could do, a time when it felt like you're right on the verge of something big, a time uh, 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 where God's word seemed crisp and alive, a time when you were getting lots of prayers answered and your relationship with God was close and personal. But for some of us, that's not where we are today. So what happened? Well, just to warn you, it's almost all downhill from this point. So what happened? Well, here's, there's a hint of the problem in the first couple of verses. First, in verse two, God tells Judah to go up and fight against the Canaanites. Judah, not Judah and Simeon. Remember, by the way, these are tribes of people, not individual people. Who should go up first, they ask? The tribe of Judah should go up first. Now, it seems like a small thing, but it's a compromise of sorts. It's an act of unfaith. It's like Judah is thinking, well, we do have God's promise, and we've seen God do great things, but just to be on the safe side, let's get Simeon to go with us. That's really not a small thing. That's a lack of faith. It's not wholehearted obedience. Remember, God said, be strong and courageous. No one will be able to stand against you because I'm with you wherever you go. So Judah is already on the safe side, God's side. God is on their side, but right here, there's a small compromise that really isn't so small. Judah, you go up first, not Judah and Simeon. You guys team up and go. And yeah, that's a big deal. That's a really big deal. But God doesn't call attention to it here in chapter one, but stay tuned. Second, we see another compromise in the story about Adonai Bezek that we looked at earlier. Back in Deuteronomy 20, God told the Israelites, completely destroy the Canaanites. Otherwise, they will teach you to follow all the detestable things they do in worshiping their gods, and you will end up sinning against your God. Now, that's, that's a hard command, but it's a clear command. It's God's judgment, as we talked about earlier. And instead of killing this wicked king, Adonai Bezek, they mutilate him, cutting off his thumbs and big toes. And verse seven tells us they take him back to Jerusalem to humiliate him as a trophy of war. That's not what God said to do. Again, these are seemingly small compromises, but they plant seeds of disobedience that will take root and grow into a great big mess. Well, there were a few more victories that you read about in verses nine through 18, but then things start falling apart, verse 19. 
And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country because he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. And Hebron was given to Caleb, as Moses had said, and he drove out from it three sons of Anak, verse 21. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem, so the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. Then verse 27 says, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Bethshean and, and, and its villages, or Tanakh, and the people of other Canaanite cities. They persisted in dwelling in the land, and when Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor. They made them, made them to be their slaves, and they didn't drive them out completely. That's another compromise. And then you read about the domino effect of compromise. Verse 29, and Ephraim did not drive the Canaanites out and they lived among them, compromise. Verse 30, Zebulun did not drive out the Canaanites so they lived among them and they forced them to work as slaves, double compromise. Verse 31, Asher did not drive out the Canaanites, compromise. Verse 33, Naphtali did not drive out the Canaanites and they forced them to work as slaves, double compromise. Verse 34, the Amorites totally defeat the tribe of Dan. But finally, the house of Joseph defeats the Amorites and made them their slaves, another compromise. Small, seemingly small compromises lead to big compromise. Like, rather than driving the inhabitants out of all these various territories by trusting God to fight their battles and obeying every word, they grew fearful and they grew weary of fighting all these battles especially when you go up against iron chariots, iron-plated chariots, which was like people with bow and arrows fighting against World War II-era Sherman tanks. That's tough. Makes you, makes you almost feel sorry for them. Almost. I mean, it's tough when you forget that it's God who fights your battles and you try to fight your battles in your own strength. And even when they won some of the battles, they compromised by allowing the Canaanites to live among them. I mean, it just made more economic sense to make them be your slaves. But that's not what God told them to do. Remember, he told them, he warned them if they didn't drive out the Canaanites, they would be lured into living like Canaanite lifestyles and worshiping Canaanite gods. And that's exactly what happens. So chapter one ends at this point, and chapter one doesn't give you an evaluation of what happened. It doesn't call out how they compromised their faith and their obedience and their mission. It just reports the facts. But at the end of chapter one, you clearly see that for a number of reasons, they haven't done what God told them to do. And here's the thing. Chapter one sets us up for the rest of the book because God's very own specially chosen people end up living with the terrible consequences of compromise, the terrible consequences of not doing what God told them to do, and they're gonna live with those consequences for a long time, three to 400 years, depending on how you date the Exodus. And so the rest of this book, in a way, is the result of all those compromises here in chapter one. And the rest of the book shows us the terrible consequences of compromise that the people make in chapter one. So as this chapter comes to the close, the Israelites are living in the promised land. They've settled vast territories in the land. 
but they are living alongside of idol-worshiping, child-sacrificing Canaanites. It's like living with landmines buried all around you. Landmines ready to explode at any moment. Landmines that'll destroy the spiritual lives of God's people. And it's not until you get to chapter two that we hear God's evaluation of what happened in chapter one. And what God says in chapter two is clear and to the point. But before moving forward, let's push pause for a minute. I'm wondering, I wonder, are there any areas of your life where you know the right thing to do, where you know what God says to do, but you're making excuses not to do it? Any areas of your life where you know you're making little compromises here and there, thinking that it's really not a big deal? Let's talk about that for a minute. You and I live in a broken world, in a world that is spiraling down, going from bad to worse, morally, socially, politically, religiously. And like the Israelites in Judges chapter 1, we, we, we're not experienced life the way God intended for us, the way God promised us. And the question is, well, if God is so good and powerful, then, then what's the problem? Well, for a lot of people who follow Jesus, I would say most of us, just like the ancient Israelites, our biggest problem is in how we view our circumstances, The Israelites faced some pretty tough circumstances, seemingly impossible circumstances. I mean, it's not easy to go to war against people who have iron-plated chariots when all you have is foot soldiers equipped with swords and spears and bow and arrows. Now, here's an ancient carving of a Hittite chariot, and the Hittites were uh, a part of the Canaanite culture. It's like the Canaanites were like Europeans, So Hittites and Amorites and Perizzites and Parasites and Termites and all that kind of thing, they were all like Germany, England, France, Belgium, that kind of thing. So now you can can see here that the person, there's a person being run over by the chariot. And so that was definitely not his best day. But, uh, you know, like if you've got a whole army on foot coming and these these chariots are just mowing you down like that. By the way, he's not checking the oil on that horse. Uh, I mean, these, these, these chariots could hold archers. They could hold soldiers with spears. They were powerful weapons. And when you face iron chariots, it's easy to become fearful. And then you start trying to find easier ways out, which is called compromise. Now, here's the deal. Moses told the people that when they got to the land, they would go up against people with iron chariots. They were told ahead of time. Deuteronomy 20, verse one, Moses said, when you go out into battle against your enemies and you see horses and iron chariots and people more numerous than you, do not be afraid of them for the Lord your God is with you. Remember, he's the one that brought you up out of Egypt. If he can part the Red Sea, the puny little chariots are nothing for him. God said iron chariots would not be a problem, and guess what? Deborah, female judge that we'll look at over in chapter four, she's up against uh, the, a, a, a bunch of Canaanites, and Deborah has faith, and she trusts God. She trusts Yahweh, and, and she got her general, Barak, 
to go out and he faced, the text says, 900 chariots. But Deborah and Barak trusted God. They were not afraid. And we're told in chapter 4, verse 15, the Lord routed Sisera, the commander of the Canaanite armies, and all of his chariots and all of his army, and the enemy was defeated. So were iron chariots really a problem? Were circumstances really a problem? Are your circumstances really the problem? Or is the problem that your view of your circumstances is bigger than your view of your God? What are your iron chariots? Something to think about. Now, there's another side to this whole thing with the circumstances that the Israelites faced. And that is Israel grew weary of fighting one battle after another. They wanted to settle down. They didn't want to keep fighting, which is understandable. But what happened was they ended up fighting an enemy that was more, to determine, more determined to keep their land than the Israelites were to take their land. And everywhere the Israelites looked, they faced circumstances that convinced them it was just too hard to do what God had called them to do. Same thing happens today. God clearly calls us to do certain things and not do certain things, but all too often it's just too hard to do what God tells us to do. And what do we say? We say, I can't do that. I just can't do that. It's like God says, do this. And we say, but God, I can't do it because it's just too hard. And then we convince ourselves that this time it's okay to not do what God says. Like take forgiveness, forgiveness, for instance. I mean, many of us justify our unwillingness to forgive by saying, I can't forgive that. Oh, no, I cannot forgive that. I cannot forgive him. I cannot forgive her for what they said or did to me. Yet Jesus commands us to forgive those who do us wrong. And Peter, you know, many of you know this story. Peter comes to Jesus, says, how many times do I have to forgive this guy over here? And Jesus says, well, how about 70 times seven, which is not count up to 490 and then, you know, like, no. It's, it means we are to forgive an infinite, infinite number of faults against us. We are to forgive just as we have been forgiven. And all of our sins, past, present, and future, are forgiven. Limitless forgiveness and grace. And that means... Since Jesus tells us and commands us to do it, God doesn't command us to do things we can't do. So that means we can decide to lay aside anger and we can ask the Holy Spirit to soften our hearts with the knowledge of the, of the grace and the gospel which we've experienced ourselves. It's not a matter of I can't, it's a matter of I won't. The honesty, we say, but it's only a little white lie. I mean, I can't tell him the truth, but God says, don't lie, speak the truth in love. So again, it's not, I can't, it's, I won't. And then there's the whole issue of temptation itself. We say, we say, well, I know it's wrong, but the temptation is just too strong. I mean, I just can't do it. It's just too much for me. And we have to really be careful here because sin has an addicting power. And it's true. We may not be able with sheer willpower to stop doing something for ourselves, but we can admit the problem and humble ourselves and get help and then become accountable. We can do that. 
God gives us the strength to do what he commands. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 is a great verse to memorize if you haven't already memorized it, but it is no temptation has overtaken you, but such that is, is common to everybody and God is faithful and he won't allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able to resist. But with the temptation, God provides you with a way of escape that you may be able to endure the time of testing. You see, the Old Testament graphically portrays what the New Testament expresses in principles. And 1 Corinthians 10, 13 is a principle. It's a promise that God will never put us in a position where it's impossible for us to obey, even though it might feel that way. Again, seemingly impossible circumstances, really hard circumstances are not the problem. It's how we view circumstances that's the problem. And if we don't see God as bigger than our circumstances, then we set ourselves to make a compromise here, compromise there, and that will lead to a great big mess. Let me say it this way. Compromise begins with looking at our circumstances and saying, I can't. But when God says you can, if you say I can't, what God hears is I won't. Follow that? Let's do it one more time. Back the truck up. Compromise begins with looking at our circumstances and saying I can't. But when God says you can, if you say I can't, God hears I won't. That's disobedience. And chapter two drives home that point. And then it also shows us how we can, what we can do to reframe our view of our circumstances. Look at chapter two, verse one. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum, and he said, I brought you. This is God speaking. I brought you up from Egypt, and I brought you into the land I swore to give your fathers. I said to you, I promise you, I will never break my covenant with you. And I told you, make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. Don't let them live among you. And I told you, you shall break down their altars, but you've not obeyed my voice. What have you done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your side and their gods will be a snare to you. And that's what happens in the rest of the book of Judges. When you read chapter one through the eyes of an ancient Israelite, there does seem to be very plausible circumstantial reasons as to why they didn't succeed in their military campaign. Superior military might on the part of the enemy, greater determination on the part of the enemy, the economic convenience, like why not have people work for you instead of throwing them out. But God totally ignores all the circumstantial excuses that they might have relied on, and God boils it down to this. You have not obeyed my voice. That's it, period. And then listen, this is just, this really took me back when I thought about this. God says, you have not obeyed my voice. What have you done? You hear the raw emotion there? It's like what they've done is an affront. It's an insult to God. This is not, God's not some impersonal force that doesn't, that is not affected by whether we follow him or not. No, 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 no. What have you done? And here's, here's what they did. Here are the consequences of compromise. Compromise leads to outright 
disobedience, which leads to God's discipline. Compromise leads to outright disobedience, which leads to God's discipline. In chapter 2, verse 2, God says that the Israelites did not break down Canaanite altars. That was outright disobedience. God said to rid the land of Canaanite idols, and they didn't do it. And God said, drive out the inhabitants of the land, which they didn't do, not because, again, not because they couldn't, but because they wouldn't. And that is disobedience. And by allowing the Canaanites to continue to live in the land, by not breaking down their pagan altars, the result was that God's people would be living with landmines on every side, and they would be living alongside of idol-worshiping pagans who would ultimately lead them astray, which would bring God's discipline upon his own people. And the judgment that he had brought on the Canaanites, he's going to end up bringing on his own people. Oh, I'm telling you, it's a terrible, terrible story. But it's an important one for us to get our minds around because what happened in the days of the judges is happening in our days as well. You see, compromise is the result of forgetting who God is and what God has done. It's just as simple as that. When we are tempted to compromise, we are deceived into not remembering who God is and what God has done for us. From our perspective, our excuses sound reasonable and convincing. But from God's perspective, he sees all disobedience as a failure to remember what he's done and who he is. In verse three, before he tells the people that they've disobeyed, God says, I brought you out of the land of Egypt. That refers to his saving work. And when we compromise our faith, our obedience, and our mission, God says it's because we're failing to remember what he's done to save us. And verse one says, I said to you, I'll never break my covenant with you. And that refers to who God is. God being holy. And so when we compromise, when we choose to not do what God said, it's also because we fail to remember that God is holy and he is rightful king over our lives. So compromise is the result of forgetting who God is, forgetting that he is our good and great and faithful rightful king, and it's forgetting what God has done to save us to make us his own. Now, what about that? Is there some area of your life where you're making compromises? Some area where you're being tempted to make compromises? If so, think about this. If so, what are you being tempted to forget about God that if you remembered and held on to it, it would give you the strength to remain faithful? What's the Holy Spirit putting his finger on in your life right now? Now I'll close with this. Commentators have noticed that right here at the beginning of chapter two, there's kind of this dramatic tension in the story. And you see the tension when you compare verse one and verse three. In verse one, God says, I will never break my covenant with you. But verse three says, but I also said, if you compromise with these nations, I won't drive them out. It's almost like it's God said, what have you done you put me in a, an impossible situation, so to speak. I've sworn to bless you as my beloved people, but I've also sworn not to bless you as a disobedient people. 
How am I gonna solve this dilemma? What have you done? See it? On the one hand, God is holy and just and cannot tolerate or live with or bless evil. But on the other hand, God is loving and faithful and merciful and he can't tolerate the loss of the people that he's committed himself to. And this tension hangs in the air all through the book of Judges and really it hangs in the air all through the Old Testament. I mean, how does God resolve this tension between his holiness and his love, his faithful love to the people that he's committed himself to? I hope you know the answer. The answer is that the tension is resolved in Jesus. It's only on the cross that we can understand how God was able to resolve that tension. On the cross, our sin was imputed to Christ and his righteousness is imputed to us. It's called the great exchange. My sin for Christ's righteousness. His death for my life. And on the cross, Jesus took God's judgment into himself, upon himself, and he died in our place, and therefore he satisfied God's justice because sin was punished. But also on the cross, we see God's great and limitless love for us so that now, when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, he's able to forever accept us and forgive us. That's why Paul says, this has become one of my favorite verses, Romans 4.26, Paul says, that's why God can be both just and the justifier of those who believe. Isn't that good? The cross was the only way God could love us conditionally and unconditionally at the same time because Jesus fulfilled the conditions of the law for us so that now God can unconditionally be committed to us no matter what. Now, you'll see as we study through the judges, there are these repeated cycles where God's people are faithful and unfaithful. They're faithful, they're unfaithful. They're faithful and they're unfaithful. And you'll see how when they're faithful, God blesses them. And when they're unfaithful, God disciplines them. It's a terrible story. It's just a terrible story. Seven ugly downward spiraling cycles like this. And I'll warn you, it can be pretty depressing because in the book of Judges, there is really no hope that anything will ever change. But make no mistake about it, hope is there. It's kind of behind the scenes hope. A hope that comes from outside ourselves. A hope that supersedes all these little earthly deliverers looking for a savior who will make the world right again. It's a hope that God will do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. It's a hope that only comes to us in the gospel of the grace of Christ Jesus. And it's a hope that can strengthen us in the daily battles we face. And it's a hope that carries us through difficult, seemingly impossible circumstances that we face with our faith intact and and it's a hope that strengthens us to overcome every temptation to compromise that we face. You ready for this? Buckle up. It'll be a bumpy ride. Father God, thank you so much for your word. I thank you that in your word, you don't sugarcoat life. But you tell us 
in your word why we're so messed up and why the world is so messed up. And God, in your word, you tell us what you've done to make us right and what you will do to make this whole world right when kingdom, your kingdom comes and your will is done on earth as it is in heaven. We look so forward to that day. That is our hope. And so, Father, as we begin this study through Judges, help us to see how we can live by the power of your Holy Spirit and by your grace. We can live in a culture that is compromising, but we can have an uncom uncompromising faith. Lord, we're living in Canaan, and we need to know how to rest our faith and trust and obedience in Jesus so that our faith doesn't waver and our obedience is, is half-hearted. We don't want that. We don't want that. We want to be your people to put you on display in our world today, to put your goodness and your greatness and your mercy and your righteousness and your truth and your justice on display and that we might be a people who would carry out the same mission you entrusted to Israel, that we would be a blessing to the nations, blessing to people who don't know you so that you would draw them to yourself because of Jesus. And we ask that you would work in us and through us to that end. And we ask all this in Jesus' name, amen.